All right, we're going through the second letter of Paul to Timothy, morning and evening. We are tacking it now and sucking out all its beneficial quantities. And so, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 15 to 18. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and wasn't ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now, the Lord Jesus said different things that uh, we have to hold in balance. He once said to his disciples, uh, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So following Christ brings division. Even into a family. Some love him. And some are most frustrated that these members of the family then are now getting baptized and, and going to church. And are careful about what they do with their lives. And then Jesus also told his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in the first word of Jesus, he warned that his claims and his discipleship were bound to bring division into the world, even into the most sacred institution of marriage. Jesus didn't say, well, now the marriage relationship trumps everything. Nothing must divide the members of a family. He, d he didn't say that. Our relationship with the God who made us and the God who sustains us and blesses us and keeps us, to whom our debt is so vast for everything we have and are, then our response to him, our worship of him, our obligations to him, are number one always in our lives. They uh, precede our obligations to our parents. If God says, no, you're not to be baptized, then you wait till you're 18 to be baptized. If a wife is told by her husband that she's not to go to church on a, on a Sunday, We all pray for her. And uh, I go to see the husband. And we do all in our power to save that marriage and save that husband. Nothing gets priority over our relationship to the living God. We are to love God more than we love our spouses, our parents, our children, 
And so the Lord Jesus then warns us that there's going to be division where he is taken seriously, where his name and his office and his glory and power are loved and esteemed by men and women. And so there was division, wasn't there? When you read the Gospels, every chapter almost, he walks through Galilee and he preaches in the villages and some throw him out and the Pharisees hate him and trouble him. Some say he's, uh, he's the Messiah, he's the prophet. Others say he's serving the devil. And it was thus with his uh, servants then, um, communities, synagogues were divided. Jesus warned his disciples of these two unavoidable realities that there would be enduring love amongst his people. Ah, his real people would stick to one another and care for one another and love one another with pure hearts fervently and would bear one another and would esteem other members of the congregation far better than they esteem themselves. And then there would be division and the parting of the ways. And in this passage before us, then, we see both these realities in what Paul writes about to Timothy. He's been speaking of what he's gone through. He didn't think that telling Timothy of the sadness that he'd experienced and also the delights of certain people who had been so good to him was something rather private that he ought to keep to himself. The Holy Spirit, writing through Paul, was not gossiping when he named people and spoke of the heartache that they had caused the apostle when they had deserted him. And also the wonderful blessing that one man had been to him, how he came to him there in Rome and sought him out and refreshed him. And they're named. And so Timothy is being told here um, to learn from these uh, great uh, these great events. So, two points then with the two different people, the two different groups that are mentioned here. Firstly, we're told that the professing church in the province of Asia had turned en masse against Paul. All, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. It's quite an incredible statement, you You have to read it twice. You think, well, there must be some hyperbole here. Remember, there were no denominations at this time at all. There was the one collection of gospel congregations, the churches of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, the body of Christ. Now, the province of Asia is called today Turkey. In that day... It was the center of Greek influence. It was in the Roman Empire. It was a huge area. And Paul was in prison and he writes this letter to Timothy in Asia. So that letter then went firstly across the Adriatic Sea to Greece. And then it was taken overland from the west coast of Greece to the east coast of Greece. And then... The bearer of the letter, he got on a boat and he sailed across the Aegean Sea until he arrived on the west coast of uh, 
of Turkey, right in the middle there, this big city of Ephesus is. Paul knew all about what was happening there. And Timothy standing alone. The defections are are quite staggering. Once Paul had been locked up in prison, then uh, these leaders, these church leaders, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they got cracking. They have strange names to us, aren't they? They sound like the names of drugs. Rub a little Phygelus in it every day and take a Hermogenes tablet then first thing in the morning. (laughs) These men, uh, they weren't a physic at all. They weren't a cordial. They were a poison. They could have been men who owed their conversion to the Apostle Paul. Certainly they owed their understanding of justification by faith and sanctification and the work of grace and union with Christ. They, they owed all that to the Apostle Paul. We know nothing about them except their names recorded only here in Scripture. They've jumped ship and they have taken churches with them because uh, preachers do have influence over men. And at that time, particularly so because the new Gospels, the four Gospels, which just around this time had been being completed and were being copied laboriously, carefully, and were being sent around the churches, they, they probably had not reached Asia yet. Some of the letters of Paul had reached there. And so God at this time then gave other gifts of the Spirit to the fledgling church, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecies, tongues, interpretations. And one can easily see how someone who uh, is a claimant of possessing those gifts could say, a word from God has come uh, to say that Paul can no longer be relied on to be our apostle and messenger from God. God has raised up Phygelus and Hermogenes. Hallelujah. And then you can see their supporters then uh, speaking in meetings and uh, talking of the glorious future. They had a word from God. The, the desert was going to blossom like a rose. A great revival was coming. The latter-day rains were going to fall. Let's close this chapter of Paul and let's begin this wonderful new chapter of Phygelus and Hermogenes. And it was absolutely intoxicating. And here was Timothy with this enormous debt to the apostle and his love for him. And he's there in the middle of Turkey, in the middle of Asia Minor. He's, his congregation is one of the seven churches of, of Asia Minor. And uh, all around him are people that are deserting him. And uh, he's no longer present at presbytery meetings. He doesn't turn up at association meetings of the church because... They have deserted the Apostle Paul. And he's being accused then of being a young man and full of himself and proud and being a loner and a difficult man because he's not joining in the blessings that uh, these other churches are experiencing. And that's the connection then between our text tonight and everything that's gone before. What you've heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard 
the deposit that's been entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Timothy, don't be bought by their smiles, by the offer they make of making you their, their moderator, their area superintendent, the principal of their new training school of the prophets. Timothy, don't be frightened by their frowns because of what I've told you already, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. And so you must fan into flame the gift that God has given you. You must be a burning and a shining light now. If any time you were needed, you are needed now amongst the churches of Asia because they're sinking, they're disappearing. So their desertion of the apostles certainly means they had abandoned their loyalty to Paul. And that means they must have abandoned his gospel because the only way you could abandon someone who was now in prison a thousand miles away from you is to abandon his teaching, to abandon his theology. And that is how this word uh, to desert is used in the two other places in the pastoral epistles in chapter 4 and verse 4 and uh, Titus 1 and verse 14. Okay, so here's a man. He hasn't changed. The Apostle Paul, he hasn't relinquished his vocation, his office, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Son of God has not decommissioned him. The Lord was still using him in this last letter that he wrote to the jots and the tittles of what he wrote on that papyrus and sent it by that circuitous route from Rome on the east, on the west side of Italy, right across sea, land, sea, then to Ephesus, to Timothy. He hadn't become heretical. He hadn't had a moral fall. There wasn't a slave girl that had gone to him for counsel. And uh, he had emotionally and unwisely and sinfully got involved in her. No hint of scandal at all. What he told uh, the young men to do, he did. He told the young men, treat the older women as your mother. Treat the younger women as your sister. And that's what he himself did. And more than that, he was full of the Holy Spirit. By anyone's definition of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, Paul was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And in any examination of his ministry, he was the most successful church planter that the world has ever seen or ever will see. We know he had taken the gospel to Galatia and planted a church there. And Colossae and Laodicea and Ephesus and Pisidian Antioch. He had across Asia planted those churches. Then he had the Macedonian call and he'd got on a boat and he'd sailed um, across the Aegean to Greece. And then he went to Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens and he left behind him in all those places, thriving congregations that he prayed for and wrote letters to. He was the supreme evangelist and church planter and preacher and counselor and theologian and prayer. And he had written for the fledgling church and then for us the great definitive work on what is Christianity? How do you become a Christian? And he did it in the 16 chapters of the letter to the Romans. These 
men. These congregations in Asia Minor had deserted him. They deserted him at a time when the Holy Spirit was greatly at work through Europe. It wasn't a barren time. There was much of the oil of the Holy Spirit then um, making the wheels of Christian living and the wheels of church life turn sweetly without the grating and the squeaking that comes when there's not oil. The Spirit of God was there in abundance. Peter had, uh, was preaching. Uh, and Peter had just written a letter to the churches in Asia Minor, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. You know the beginning of, of his first letter to, uh, to um, the churches there. And he is 100% in harmony with what uh, his dear brother Paul has written. And yet, at such a time, at such a time of blessing, when Paul was suffering for the work of the gospel, these cards <laughs> en masse were persuaded to abandon the pattern of sound teaching, the good deposit that God had entrusted to them. To follow two little anonymous men. And Timothy was very much on his own. And so Paul writes to him. It's in the first letter. It's five chapters. And then the four chapters of, of this nine great chapters of scripture. And uh, you can see the wisdom of what he says to, to Timothy. It's more than a knowledge of theology at this time. He needs, he needs to stir up and fan the flames of the gift that God has given to him, that it will blaze. He needs to be a burning and a shining light in the province of Asia. And not to be ashamed that Paul is in prison, because they're using that against him. Suffer with me. And this is my gospel, he says. And oh, let me read it to you again. God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done but because of his own purpose and grace this grace was given us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel well were Phygelus and Hermogenes preaching a gospel that in any way compared to the glory of that statement. Paul tells Timothy that he has been appointed. Paul has been appointed an apostle and a herald and a teacher of this old gospel. And it's brought him much suffering. But I'm not ashamed, he says. Because I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So Timothy, don't you be ashamed of being criticized as a loner and standing alone so that's the letter. That's the historical context it comes from. Timothy being ostracized, needing to be reminded that the Holy Spirit was in him day by day. That he wasn't alone in resisting the errors of these men who had left Paul. You are not alone. The Holy Spirit couldn't be any closer to you than he is. He's in you, Timothy. One with God is the majority, is in the majority. 
Well, I can turn this uh, sad fact then um, in, in a number of ways. We shouldn't have been surprised that there was a mass abandonment in Wales a century or more ago of confessional Christianity, of the historic Christian faith. We're not at all to be surprised that there was this attack on, on the gospel and that it has resulted in a terrible desert and empty churches and the sh- closing of theological colleges and God has removed the candlestick. The light has gone out and pulpits have turned away. The pattern of sound teaching found in scripture is not in them. And there is nothing new at all. That has been the history of the church for 2,000 years. Decline, declension. And then God revives. And God works again. And that's on our heart, isn't it? For God then, to do a wonderful new work. And for God to honor his own truth. And then I can turn it also just like this to say, if men deserted the apostle who was blameless and holy and had seen Jesus and knew God and was full of the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't be surprised if if people leave then a congregation like us. It shouldn't be surprising at all. So that's my first point then on the, the negative situation that he does tell us and these men who've led the churches astray. And then the second thing is it's much more positive. Some Christians were utterly loyal to the apostle. And that's the second thing. And I wanted to say more about that. Of course, good news comes from Rome. As Asia is going down, well, Rome is going up. It happens, doesn't it? As you look back, if you have any knowledge of church history, you know that there were certain cities and communities greatly favored in the past. Hippo, a place called Hippo, horse, there in, uh, in North Africa, where um, Augustus, Augustine is the great preacher. Wittenberg in Germany. Geneva in Switzerland. Kidderminster, Bedford. London, in England, Llangaitho and Trevecca and Port Talbot in Wales, Northampton in New England, New America. And they had a time when God greatly favored them. Rome was the place to be. Rome could take those 16 chapters of the letter to Rome and it could be read out by an elder one morning. We've got a letter from Rome here. I've got a letter from Paul here. Listen, listen, friends. And they listened. You could hear a pin drop. And he read it through. And read it through. And they made copies of it. And they charged their memories to retain all that was said there. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, being justified by faith, we shall have peace with God. We present our bodies living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God. For of God and through God and to God are all things. They remembered. What spiritual maturity that congregation had. They talked the talk and they walked the walk. And so Paul says, let me open a window and just show you one person in Rome and what he did for me. And this is what he tells us about a person 
who came to visit him in prison in Rome. Okay, 16, 17, and 18. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and wasn't ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So scripture is so beautiful, doesn't it? It doesn't just drown us in the sadness of what happened in Asia and tut-tut over the follies of Phygelus and Hermogenes. Suddenly, let me tell you good news. Any good news from Aberystwyth, my friend says to me when I call him and speak to him, what's he wants? Good news of souls redeemed and Christian labor and testimony. And here's a man from Asia, a wonderful, caring, mature believer named Onesiphorus. And that's another curious name, isn't it? You know, find Christian parents in Rome sending out birth announcements telling you the date that their, their child was born on his weight and that his name was, wait for it now, Onesiphorus. Well, I'd feel sorry for a little chap who was carrying that name through life, wondering how it would be abbreviated and what nickname would be given to him. I know one of you is going to tell me you've got a cousin named Onesiphorus afterwards. Well, there we are. I'll take the embarrassment of that. But... Onesiphorus is a remarkable man here in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit wants to, for the rest of time, honor him by telling us about him here. And it's worthy that baby boys are named after him. I'm sure in Greece today, it's a, it's a Greek name, isn't it? Onesiphorus, it must, be, it must be a popular name there. Firstly... Onesiphorus had the spiritual gift of refreshing Christians. Now, many of you have that gift. Oh, thank God for that. What a wonderful gift it is. I sometimes notice you entering a room, and I sit and glance and see you, and my heart leaps with pleasure and anticipation that that you've come in. That's a precious gift that God has given you. You may not have the theological grasp that uh, other people have, and that's sad. You'd be a, a more useful and a wiser Christian if you did. That's why God has given us the Bible exactly uh, as he has. But God has given you this grace more than others to refresh other followers of Jesus Christ by your presence and your words and your work of faith and your labor of love. So the coming of a brother or a sister like Onesiphorus into our lives is as refreshing as on a hot, sultry day someone gives you a lovely glass of cold liquid to drink. And there are many Christians like him And through our pilgrimage, then, we've met them in many parts of the world. Um, We just spend a a short time with them, an hour with them. And afterwards, we feel changed. They've lifted us up, and we can thank God for them. 
And uh, we thought, oh, things are not as bad as I thought they were. So this um, second letter of Paul to Timothy is a letter of refreshment that Paul is writing to Timothy. Letters have that impact. A, a woman in Aberystwyth wrote me such a wonderful letter this week. She's not in our congregation. She's a wonderful Christian lady. And, and Paul is the great example to us about the, the value of Christian letters, isn't it? That um, his letters are so wonderful. He never damns with faint praise. He's never clever. He never puts people down or expresses his frustration angrily with them. When he addresses the church in Galatia, which has departed from the gospel, he speaks to them manfully. He talks to them directly. He expresses his deep concern that they've abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed, he says. Well, now, what can we learn from the example of Onesiphorus? And uh, how can we, as a congregation, every one of us then, be engaged in the ministry of refreshing other Christians? Well, just let's think of the possibility of us becoming like that, of having a ministry of refreshment of edifying other people, of, of the possibility that we can comfort them and strengthen them, that we could humbly express warm affection for them and we can make them feel they really belong in our congregation and that their contribution is worthwhile. And appreciated by you and, and by us all. So that in every encounter and relationship with them, uh, though we are witty people and words trip off our lips quite easily, and we have stories to tell about uh, journeys and meetings that we have and so on. We make it part of our life, of our business, to refresh them. So that after we part, they feel better. They feel they can cope. They feel encouraged because you spoke to them. So I'm saying to you also this. Let's try to be aware of the needs that there are in our fellowship. Do we know roughly where the members of the congregation stand, what their position is. I'm not now talking about inquisitive prying into the lives of other people and where they've been in the past or developing a censorious or critical attitude towards them, but being aware of the needs of the people that we greet on Sundays. Who in the congregation is discouraged? Who is close to giving up? in various directions. Who is weak? Who is feeble-minded? Where are the problems? Where are the risks? Where, where do we stand? What are the needs? Remember how Paul in this letter isn't uh, 
ashamed of writing to Timothy and saying, I'm cold. It's hard to sleep at night here. The cell is cold in the winter. When you come, bring a blanket. And there's no intellectual stimulation at all, these soldiers. After I've spoken to them, they won't talk anymore to me about Jesus Christ. They won't let me talk to them and what they're interested in and what I'm interested in. I'm chained to them for eight hours. Bring the parchments. Bring the books that you have, that I'll have something to read at this time. And come before winter, he says. That is a window opened on a ministry of refreshment. You think, I know where the needs are in the congregation. Well, I know some of them, but I don't know all of them. And there are people who will turn to their best friends for help. They say they don't want to bother the pastor, and that's great, but it would be no bother to me. I'm not that busy. Do we know where the anxieties are? Do we know where the concerns are in the congregation? Who's in danger of losing heart? Who is in danger here of falling by the wayside? Do we know? Well, refresh them. Refresh them. Again, there's uh, that phrase in uh, the letter of James describing a little old man, a brother of low degree. That's what he calls him. It doesn't mean he's got an unclassified or anything like that. But he's illiterate. And he lives very modestly. One up, one down. He has no family. He has little personality. He's prone to discouragement. He slips out of church straight after the service. He never fits in. There are congregational groupings in every church, aren't there? The young people are together, the students are together, the children are together, and so on. He never fits in with anyone. You see him. And so you ask, how can I refresh him? And I might be able to help you in suggesting how you can refresh him, but I might not. I probably am not able to. But I know what you could do. Um, You could greet him when he comes. And if he wants to stay and talk and encourage him to do that, then you remind him of God's love for him. God sending his son to seek and to save him. That he is a great high priest at the right hand of God. And he just lives and prays for this brother of low degree. And God is protecting him. And God is leading him not into temptation and he's delivering him from the evil one. And God is working all things together for his good. That he's an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And you refresh him about that. And you give him a little verse from scripture and you smile at him and when you welcome him and when you say goodbye to him so that he can boast in the Lord. And he can take pride in, in what Jesus Christ has done for him. That he is the son of the king. Like Billy Bray, the, the great primitive Methodist uh, Cornish preacher. Our Lord spoke to uh, his disciples and they were deeply flawed men. And they had little understanding still at this stage. 
And he must have felt uh, sad that they, they weren't understanding what the kingdom of God was and why he came into the world and why he had to die. And one day he came so close to them and he said to them, I'm not going to call you my servants. I'm going to call you my friends. Imagine Jesus taking the initiative and talking to an old tax collector and a, a zealot and saying, thank you for being my friend. Winter, springtime, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call, and I'll be there, because I'm your friend. That's what Jesus says to the weakest lamb in the flock of Christ, to the humblest, the most ungifted person that there is in the congregation. You tell people that they really matter to God. But maybe it's uh, not that. Maybe we've got to go to you know, somebody at the other end, the most mature person in the congregation, the, the oldest Christian, the, the minister, a missionary working in Kenya. And secretly, he is a discouraged person. You never think so. He's been a help to many people for many years. And yet, you would be amazed how a little anonymous Onesiphorus has come to him and just said a few words, given him a little piece of paper saying how much he's been helped recently by him. You'd think that Elijah would never need any encouragement because of the enormous triumph that he had on Mount Carmel and the destruction of all the enemies of the Lord, the prophets of Baal. And yet he quickly became cast down and fearful and suicidal. And God sends a messenger to him to say, come on, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And recommissions him. And again, let me say this. I'm, I'm trying to encourage you all to um, exercise the gifts you have in refreshing other Christians. <sighs> Let's trust the Holy Spirit who indwells you to help you. By his power, you can, you can do it. You can go to the home of someone who's uh, lost their, their husband or lost their wife. You can say the most wonderfully helpful things with a lisping and stammering tongue. And they'll be overwhelmed at your kindness and your wisdom and your grace to them. And those that are being chastened by the Lord and those that are being afflicted. And you can sympathize with them. People who are going through a time of spiritual desertion so that they've lost their assurance that Jesus Christ is, is theirs. And there's a thorn in the flesh that some people have. And uh, it's in the ball of their foot. And uh, every time they put a foot down, uh, it hurts them. And they can't avoid doing that. They have to move in life. And you can refresh them. People are carrying heavy loads and they're almost cracking under them. Get alongside. 
and help them. Move in with the inspiration of the word of God. You really can become an Onesiphorus. But you won't be one until you try. Ask the Spirit of God to help you. You know, you've got to be in your church, in your pew, on a Sunday. And you've got to ask God, lead me afterwards. Lead me when there are conversations afterwards. How can I respond to the people that I'm going to meet and what I hear that they're going to tell me? And you can refresh them. You know, that's what we're here for on a Sunday. We're here to refresh one another. That um, you believe that the struggles that you are going through are very worthwhile. The cup that God has asked you to drink He will help you to drink that cup. I should be saying something in the Sunday announcements like um, the next Sunday morning at 10.30 will be the morning refreshment. And then at 6 o'clock there will be the evening refreshment. And then the midweek refreshment is on Tuesday night at half past seven. And we use those opportunities of getting together and talking afterwards of being refreshed by other Christians and refreshing them ourselves. So, I've told you about Onesiphorus, that he had a gift that he exercised and refreshed another believer. Now I want to say this, that his ministry of refreshing was at times unrewarding and demanding. So we're told here by Paul, he searched hard for me until he found me. So Paul, what was he? He was a statistic of prisoners in the scores of prisons that there were in Rome that Nero had filled with people he had accused of doing wrong. And finding a a cell where a man was incarcerated was then like looking for a needle in a haystack. He was from Asia. He was from a thousand miles away. Didn't know his way around and uh, Nero had uh, set fire to a large area of Rome and so the place wasn't as it used to be. And he blamed the Christians and there was a spirit of fear then and suspicion and blocked doors. And the Christians, shame on them, they weren't looking for Paul. So Onesiphorus was on his own. He was a foreigner in the biggest city in the world. And he went to a prison and he knocked on the door. What do you want? And he explained that he was looking for a friend of his, a man called Paul. And they were unhelpful members of staff and... He asked, was there another prison nearby? And he went there. No one had heard of the apostle. And they suggested another. And he drew a blank there. And another and another. And doors slammed. And suspicious eyes were turned on him. He was asking dangerous questions. But he didn't give up. His love for his savior and his love 
for the apostle then constrained him, keep on walking, the next person and the next person. And finally, there was a nod of recognition by the official on duty. And they told him, yes, he's here, he's here in prison. And then he was escorted to him and Paul and he met again and fell in one another's arms with joy. And he discovered what Paul needed and what his plight was. But most of all, he refreshed him with a Christian conversation. And the things that really mattered to the Apostle Paul and mattered to Onesiphorus as well. Truth and, and holy love and the honor of Jesus. No one else was doing it. Everyone else was leaving it to somebody else. They didn't know who, but there would be someone looking for Paul. But he, he did it. And he refused to give up until he found him. You know, he could have, couldn't he, after two, three days, a week of this, he could have said, well, I've done my best. I I couldn't try anymore, could I? And everyone would say, no, you couldn't try anymore. And you didn't find him in all those prisons in Rome. No, you didn't find him. The hymn says, when we have reached the limit of, uh, of our resources, God giveth and giveth and giveth again. And so he'd woke up in the morning and he'd know another prison to visit. Is this a fruitless search, Lord? And he'd cry to God to help him. Open doors, Lord. One way you know that God has given you a gift and the gift can be the gift of refreshing other Christians, is persistence. And you keep on. You keep going. You don't get over-discouraged and stop. And the third thing I want you to see here is that Onesiphorus had always been like this. They had a, a thing going. Paul and Onesiphorus, they had a past, they had a relationship a work and, and a labor and a fellowship together, didn't they? It was well known in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor. You know very well, he writes verse 18, you know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. They were members of the same congregation. They, Paul was a single man. He sat perhaps with Onesiphorus. They did door-to-door work together. They arranged meetings. They spoke at them, they were the, um, the, the couple like uh, Moody and, uh, and his companion, Sankey. They were the Moody and Sankey of the early church. The gifts of the Spirit are given to us in regeneration. So that when Onesiphorus was born again, um, this gift of Refreshment was in his heart. It was an acorn then. But he nourished it and he fed it and he nurtured it and he watered it. He gave it fertilizer by the word and by the means of grace. And if you ask Paul to write a reference for Onesiphorus, he'd write three words, he helped me. He helped me. It's a great thing to be a helper, isn't it? He helped him in the fledgling church in Asia years earlier. And now Paul, soon to die. 
And uh, he's there with him still, helping him. And the last thing that we're told here about Onesiphorus is that God noticed his work and God will reward him. See what Paul says? He says it twice and he says it very carefully. He prays first that God will show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And then he repeats it uh, with a slight variation and we use the buzz, buzzword. The, there's an eschatological, that means the end times, um, There's an end times perspective on it. He says, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. Now, we don't know anything about the household of Onesiphorus. The household was a thousand miles away in Ephesus. We don't know if his parents were still alive. We don't know about how his wife was and how his children were. He was a long way from home, perhaps Paul was greatly indebted to that household that he'd often stayed there. It was the prophet's chamber in Ephesus was there in Onesiphorus' household. And he was concerned. Their breadwinner was a long way away. The head of the family, the protector, he wasn't there with them. And so he prays. Maybe there were dangers and illnesses. And he prays, God will show mercy to them. And that they'll be united again one day. That's what he's praying for the household. But then his mind moves on. You notice this then? How he thinks of a far more important day when sinners personally receive mercy from God. There's a day coming when all of you and me must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will receive then a recompense, a reward for the deeds we've done in the body. The great shepherd of the sheep is going to gather and he's going to separate goats from the sheep. We live in a moral universe. I often use that phrase. And God has blessed us with intelligence and minds and health and long life and prosperity and all the good and the great things God has entrusted to us. And the God who's entrusted these things to us is going to say, what did you do with All that I gave you. All the wonderful blessings that you had in in your life. Did you eat and, and drink and work and rest to my glory? Or did you do it all? Did you turn it all on yourself? What have you been sowing last week? Because what you have been sowing you will also reap next month and this year. Now you would think when Paul came to write of Onesiphorus, Paul would say something like, he'll be fine on the day of judgment. No fear about where he'll spend eternity. He's a saved man. He's got a great entrance into the kingdom of God. The Lord will reward him greatly in that day for his life and his labors. No, we, 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 we tend to be glib like that, don't we? When we talk about other people. But, you know, if I hear people talking about me in any way like that, or if you hear them talking about you in any way like that, what a wonderful Christian you are. And you're bound to be going to heaven. 
you hear the alarm bells ringing, don't you? You know your own heart. There's still years of pilgrimage left before us. And we've seen many fall by the way. And you will say to them something like, "Um, I'm hoping in the mercy of God. I hope they're in Jesus Christ alone. I hope I will endure to the end. I I hope I'll keep on trusting in Jesus Christ. Because only those who keep on on the narrow path keep on, plod on, plod on, day after day, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I hope I'll be kept by the power of God until that great day. May I find mercy from the Lord in that day. That's what you'll say. And that's what we'll say. That's what I'll say about you. And that's what Paul says about Onesiphorus. May he find mercy from the Lord in that day. May he be in God's presence forever and ever. I hope when you appear before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? You'll say, because of Jesus. Not because of anything I've done or anything I am. Not because I, I went round from prison to prison and knocked on doors and looked for my friend and refreshed him. Not for those things. I'm glad I was able to do that. But oh, my hope of glory will be he loved me and gave himself for me. I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. Only those will gain mercy from the Lord in those days. And um, I'm glad you believe these things tonight, many of you, because that's what Christians believe. And I hope you'll go on believing it. And that errors like these two men taught and swayed churches and took them away from the holy deposit, the pattern of gospel truth which centers on we deserve eternal death because we're sinners, but Jesus, because he loved us, died for us. and We run to him. We find our hope in him. I hope every one of you here will find mercy from the Lord in that great day. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us now. and oh, Help us to be Christians that take the possibility of refreshing other Christians so seriously. And uh, even tonight and this week, help us humbly and with stammering tongues to encourage others of our brothers and sisters to go on in the Christian life and keep on and keep looking to him who knows all about us but loves us still. Even our Saviour Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.